Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that sentence, and I am excited because we are going to have a wonderful hour as we continue our study of characters from the Old Testament. Dr. Peter Kapschner and I are back at it, and we've now been at this about, I don't know, six, seven months, Peter? Yeah, it has been about that long, and I, I think today we need to once again cue up the broken record. We've said it often, but these, <laughs> these are going to be some characters in the text that we don't know a whole lot about, and I'm very excited about the study today. Yeah, we're going to talk about Deborah and Jail, or JL. I don't even know how if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, I don't we'll, either. We'll yeah, get that all sure. cleared up. And our, our guest for the hour is Dr. Joanna Klein, and what a resume. I, I've been First of all, she's from the great state of Minnesota, so we already love her. And she majored in biblical studies and English at Gordon College as an undergraduate. And then she spent a couple years teaching English in Russia and traveling through Russia, Eastern Europe, and Turkey. And then she went and got her MDiv at Harvard Divinity School and her PhD at Harvard. Oh, so I went to junior college for 11 years. Does that count? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that sounds about right, Bill. And, and I managed to cram my four-year degree in about five years, too. So, you know, you, the, the combination of the two of us, I'm not sure we approached Joanna today. Yeah, but she is an Old Testament professor, and I'm very excited to learn about Deborah. I love Deborah. I mean, it. she is one of the most exciting characters um, in Scripture, and I'm excited to learn more. Um, so, Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. So glad you could make it today. We're excited to hear about learn about Deborah and jail. Do I say that right? Is it JL or jail? I don't even know how it's supposed to be pronounced in English. I usually go with the Hebrew Yael. Okay, well, there you go. (laughs) One for Joanna, zero for Bill. (laughs) (laughs) But let's get into Deborah because, you know, I'm amazed that she is not in Hebrews chapter 11 in 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 the Faith Hall of Fame because she should be. Yeah, her her uh, her partner Barack is mentioned. Yeah, um, who's also we'll also talk about. Um, so he gets a shout out in Hebrews eleven, but Deborah does not. I mean, God, she is a, someone that God gave a, a a major leadership role to, and it's so it's a fascinating person, and I can't wait for you to get us started as to what we can learn about Deborah. Sure. So. Uh, we're in the book of Judges. This is the story we'll look at is Judges 4 and 5. Um, and I'll just say a couple words about the book of Judges and kind of where we are in Israel's history to get us oriented to where her story comes in. Um, so the book of Judges, it's after Joshua, and um, that's the time when the Israelites have come out of Egypt, they wander in the wilderness, and then Joshua, who's the successor to Moses, leads them into the promised land, and they're able to conquer the promised land, the land of Canaan, that God promised to Abraham. And so they settle in the promised land in the book of Joshua. Um, For the most part, we have a pretty positive picture there. Joshua is a good, strong leader, um, and God's promises are being fulfilled. Um, But we do have some hints of trouble to come in that book. We see that um, the Israelites aren't able to drive out all of the Canaanites, and 
that's the situation, too, when we get into the book of Judges. So we hear at the beginning that um, many of the Canaanites are still living in the land, and that becomes a problem because uh, when the Israelites live among the Canaanites, they basically start becoming just like the Canaanites. And mm-hmm. so they worship other gods, um, and they're, they're breaking their covenant with God, um, and that leads to all kinds of trouble. <laughs> so uh, the book of Judges talks about this period in between the leadership of Joshua and then the establishment of the monarchy, which happens in Samuel. So shortly after this, we have um, the last judge, Samuel, um, and then the beginning of the monarchy with Saul and David. Um, so this period of the Judges is this time um, where we have these different leaders that God raises up. Um, throughout the book. And we have this kind of cycle that we see throughout the book that we'll see in Deborah's story as well, um, that we could break down into four parts, basically. So the cycle is something that repeats in the book. First of all, Israel disobeys God, by usually by worshiping other gods. Then the second element in the cycle is God gives them over to their enemies, so they're oppressed by their enemies. Thirdly, they cry out for help, to God, and then the fourth element uh, is that God raises up a deliverer, a judge, to save them. Um, so really, most of the judges' stories are focused on that fourth element, God um, raising up a deliverer to save them. Um, and these figures, these leaders are called judges. There are 12 of them, and um, six minor judges that we don't hear much about, and then six major judges. And um, we might think of judges, if we hear that word, as people in courtrooms kind of delivering verdicts or judging disputes. Um, And the word is used approximately that way in the Bible as well. But most of these judges are not doing that kind of job. Most of them are delivering Israel from their enemies. So they're mostly military leaders or we see lone warriors like Samson. Um, We have a little bit of a different story when we get to Deborah, but most of the judges are these um, military leaders and not actually um, judicial type judges. Um, So one more dynamic in the book is, besides the cycle, is that we kind of have um, a downward spiral. So um, we see that, you know, the Canaanites are still living in the land with the Israelites at the beginning. Um, The first few judges, uh, things are going pretty well. But really after Deborah's story, things kind of take a turn for the worse. um, And then even the judges are shown to have a lot of flaws. Sometimes they lead Israel into sin. Um, Sometimes they're sinning themselves. So we really have a kind of um, mixed bag in terms of uh, good and bad once we get to Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. Um, And that that shift kind of happens after the Deborah story um, to that downward cycle. Um, So when we look at Judges 4 and 5, we have a kind of interesting situation with on a literary level, because um, Judges 4 is a narrative, so it's a story that's told in prose, just like most of the stories in Judges. Um, But then Judges 5 is a poem. It's a song that Deborah and Barak sing after after this victory in Chapter 4. And so we kind of have Deborah's story told twice, and we'll see some different emphases and some different details uh, in both of those stories. And the only other really comparable biblical example that we have to that on the same kind of scale is in Exodus 14 and 15. So that's when Israel crosses, uh, gets the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is chasing them. And, uh, of course, they cross the Red Sea, and uh, Pharaoh's army uh, gets covered up by the Red Sea. And after that, uh, in Exodus 15, they sing a song. Moses and the Israelites sing this song called the Song of the Sea and recount God's uh, victory uh, over the Egyptians in that event. So we have a really 
interesting kind of close parallel there. And we'll see some other parallels between Moses and the Exodus story and what we have here in um, the story of Deborah and Barak and Yael. And Joanna, I know we're going to get into some of these details in, in just a bit, but you referenced the song that she sings in, uh, mm-hmm. or the, the song of Deborah anyway, in, in Judges chapter 5. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the oldest examples um, of, of poetry we see, and maybe one of the oldest pieces of literature we have related to the Old Testament? Yeah, that's what people think. It does. The language is very difficult. Um, so if you look at two different translations, you might get a lot of different variations. Um, and that it does look like it is very ancient. So um, the poem might go back even a long time before the narrative part of the story. Um, that's what we see with some different poems in the Bible. But yes, people do think this is very, very ancient. And Joanna, when we talk about Deborah, I know there's a distinction. There's another Deborah in Scripture, but I think that was Rebecca's nurse. And we just want to make sure we're talking about the, the Deborah in Judges uh, chapters 4 and 5. Yeah, so Deborah, we don't hear a lot about Rebecca's nurse in Genesis, but it's interesting that she's actually buried um, very near where this Deborah is, uh, her home base is where her home is. So um, I'm not sure if there's any connection, but it, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting that she's she lives close to the burial site of uh, Rebecca's nurse and maybe just a kind of connection, interesting connection between the patriarchal stories and the stories of the judges here. Mm-hmm. I also heard, too, Joanna, that this is just a fun fact known by few, but mm-hmm. th- the word um, Deborah means bee, B-E-E, and they're like yep. like the most highly intelligent little insect out there, her creature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Deborah means bee, um, and we have a lot of interesting little uh, word verbal connections uh, that link the stories in Judges. Um, so it's kind of interesting that bees show up one time. Bees don't show up a lot in the Bible. Um, bees show up one time in the Samson story uh, in a negative context. There's these bees that um, are inhabiting a lion carcass and they uh, make honey in there and Samson eats the honey, which is not a good thing because he's not supposed to be eating anything unclean. He's eating out of a dead body, which isn't the best. So um, <laughs> we have bees showing up in that story, but here we have a more positive uh, B character, I guess. Mm-hmm. Dr. Joanna Klein is our guest. We're talking today about Deborah and JL, <laughs> or Jail, JL. I'm not, I'm not sure. I spend usually a whole hour trying to get it right. But we're going to uh, just step aside. We're going to continue learning about Deborah in our Old Testament series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so happy to have Joanna as our guest today. And that's all next. Testament series, Loving It. Dr. Joanna Klein is our guest, assistant professor of Old Testament at Gordon College. She is uh, uh, talking about Deborah and JL today. So this is a a fascinating hour. I love Deborah. I think she's amazing. And uh, we learn about her in Judges chapter, I'm sorry, in Judges chapter four and five. So let's jump in, Joanna, to chapter four. All right, so I'm just going to read at the beginning of chapter 4, and the first three verses 
set the scene. So we don't see Deborah yet, but we see what's going on. So it says in chapter 4, verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So Ehud is the last major judge. His story is told in chapter 3. Um, I'll just give a couple of details about him because we see some interesting parallels with what happens as the Deborah story plays out. Um, so Ehud is this left-handed Benjaminite judge. He, uh, the Israelites are being oppressed by the Moabites. And Eglon does this tricky move where he approaches the king of Moab. Um, he has a sword strapped to his leg. He tells him that he has a secret from God, a message from God for him. Um, when the king gets close, he thrusts the sword through his belly, um, escapes out the window, and then uh, leads this battle and defeats the Moabites. So that was uh, Ahud. <clears throat> Things apparently went pretty well during uh, his reign, his judgeship. Um, it says that the land had rest for 80 years. But then he dies, and we see that first element of the cycle that I talked about where Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 2 says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haroshet Hagoyim. So that's that second element. So God gives them into the hand of their enemies. They're being oppressed by this Canaanite group, this Canaanite king. Um, and uh, then in, in verse 3, they cry out to God. That's that third element of the cycle. So the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Um, so they're in a bad situation here. Um, they don't have uh, the iron technology that the, these Canaanites do, and the, they have so they have these 900 chariots. Um, they're oppressed for 20 years. We When we look at the poem in chapter five, we also see some details about how bad the situation is. So um, it says that the highways were abandoned, travelers kept to the byways, um, they don't have any weapons. So uh, it looks like it's dangerous for them to travel, they're cut off, um, they're in this really uh, oppressive situation and really having a hard time and they're really um, the underdog here. And so um, that's the, the terrible situation that they find themselves in. They cry out and then we are introduced to Deborah in the next verse, verse four. And so that's uh, the rest of the story is how God raises up um, deliverers for his people and how he how he delivers the people in this really dark and difficult situation. And that's a point that I just want to highlight throughout, um, that God helps the people during dark and difficult times. This is um, emphasized a lot in the whole book of Judges, uh, the whole Bible, um, but this chapter as well. So we meet Deborah in verse 4. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidote, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we have a kind of different situation here than we see with a lot of the judges. So most of the judges, we have God raising them up at a particular moment. Often it says that God puts his spirit on them and they're able to accomplish what they need to do, usually a military victory. But with Deborah, um, even the grammar of, of the sentence shows that she's already an established leader during this time. So she's a person who um, is a prophet and she gives judgments as a judge. So in distinction to most of the judges, she's actually a, a judicial type judge. She sits under her tree. She has a tree palm named after herself, the palm of Deborah. She's sitting there um, and all these people are coming to her with their disputes. So she's portrayed as this wise judge, um, judging the people. And she's also a prophet, which is a person who speaks for God. And we see her uh, exercising that role as the story goes on. Um, we can 
kind of think of analogies with earlier figures like Moses, for example. So Moses was a prophet, and he also um, sat in judgment. We see in Exodus 18, he, people are coming to him from day to night with their um, problems and their issues, and he's offering judgments. Um, and we also see that with Samuel. So Samuel's considered the last judge. We don't see him in the book of Judges. He appears in the book of First Samuel. Um, but he is also a prophet, and he's also a judge who um, who goes around on a, a kind of circuit judging Israel um, in actually the same area as Deborah's in. So uh, his home base is Ramah, which is mentioned in this verse as well. So De- Deborah kind of in her role as um, prophet and judge, she anticipates Samuel in a way, um, but she kind of stands apart from the other judges in the book of Judges who are more of military leaders, um, not prophets and not judging judges. So, uh, so she's here. She's she's an established leader in the community already, as I said. Um, but we see her kind of uh, coming, uh, stepping up for this particular situation, this particular um, uh, this particular battle with the Canaanites. Um, so how it, it plays out, we see in verse six, it says she sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. So, um, as I said, most of the judges are are military leaders. Um, Here we have kind of two roles here between Deborah and Barak. Um, they're covering a lot of bases. So uh, Barak is going to be the, the military leader. She calls him, and here she's speaking in her role as a prophet, um, saying, God God commands you. She gives him this message, God commands you to bring people out um, to Mount Tabor. So this is in the kind of around the Galilee region, so north of where Deborah is living. Um, Incidentally, it's also traditionally identified as the site of Jesus's transfiguration that we hear about in the New Testament. Um, So this is taking place at the same place. Probably the mountain isn't named in the New Testament, but it's a a likely candidate um, for the for the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, so she she calls Barak, um, but he is a little bit hesitant. So in verse 8, he says, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Uh, so remember, Sisera is their army commander. We don't really hear much about that king um, of Canaan that they're being oppressed by. So Sisera is kind of the main enemy character here in this story. Um, So Barak is kind of hesitant in the way we might see him as anticipating the next judge, Gideon. Um, We see lots of hesitancy on Gideon's part to to do lots of things. Uh, um, And, you know, just like God works with Gideon and meets him in his weakness, I think um, God meets Barak in in his weakness too. Um, Deborah agrees to go with him into battle. um, And so, you know, we might see this as kind of... um, negative on his part, a lack of trust or a kind of cowardice. Um, and it, it could be that. Um, but we also have the element of um, provision for him. Um, so Deborah goes with him. And as we see, as, as things play out in the battle, um, God provides 
and help in a lot of different ways. Um, and so, as I said, we see throughout the story that God helps the people in these dark and difficult times, um, and God works with people in their strengths and in their weaknesses. And I think we see that throughout the story as well. Um, an interesting thing is that, so so Deborah says, basically prophesies, that the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. If we're just encountering the story for the first time, um, the obvious candidate here would be Deborah. We think that uh, Deborah will be the one who ends up kind of being this this hero that God sells Sisera um, into her hand, but we'll be surprised <laughs> as we go on and see what happens in the story. Um, God works through some people in very surprising ways in the story, and um some unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Peter and I both have a couple of questions for you before our break. Yeah. But when I think about Barak, and, and mm-hmm. he says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And it, I'm wondering, is part of that cowardice or is part of that wisdom where he's going, wait a minute, this is Deborah who talks directly to the Lord and hears from the Lord. If I'm going into battle and the odds are against me, I want her by my side. Yeah, that's definitely one way that that it can be read, and that some people have read it, that he just recognizes uh, a good leader, and so he wants her there. And we'll see that she does play um, an important, encouraging role for him in the midst of the battle. So, um, yeah, it it may be that uh, he's just being smart. All right, Peter, you got a better question than this one? No. <laughs> I thought that was a, a fabulous question. <laughs> I think, but I think just exactly related to that, I, Joanna, we I think sometimes look back, and it seems unusual to us uh, as we read through the scriptures that maybe a female would be leading in battle in this particular way. But was that unusual for through the lens of Hebrew culture at that point? Because there's other women who do lead throughout uh, the Bible at various points. Yeah, that's a great question. I I do think the general biblical picture is one where, um, you know, most of the leaders we see in various capacities are men. Um, and so I do think it, it, there's somewhat a surprising aspect uh, in their culture, too, as well. as uh, It's not just us that would be surprised about this um, on the one hand. So uh, on the other hand, we do see women play important roles, including leadership roles like Deborah um, and they, her her the aspect of her being a woman isn't really commented on here. I think um in terms of of Yael or or Gile, uh that her her um identity as a woman is highlighted and commented on um as the story goes on. But with Deborah, um it might be I think um somewhat rare to have a leader like her. We don't see many pictures like this in the Bible. Uh at the same time it's not commented on um, as some kind of, you know, anomaly or something like that. All right, we'll take a little break, and then we're going to continue our our great study on Deborah and Jael with Dr. Joanna Klein. She is an Old Testament uh, professor, and we're awfully glad that we're continuing our series with people that we're learning about from the Old Testament. And I am fascinated by Deborah, and I think she should be in the in the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 Hall of Fame. So that's one of the things I'm going to after the, I go to the information booth in heaven and go, okay, explain the Trinity thing. And then after that, <laughs> I want to go to the Chapter 11 Hall of Fame booth and go, why wasn't Deborah in? So that's all coming up next. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to have Dr. Joanna Klein with us. We'll be right back.
We talk about during the break what happens when we go to this little intermission, this 90-second break. Well, Peter and, and Joanna and I have been chatting, and what a discovery we've made that Joanna's mom has had a big influence in Peter's life. That is a crazy yeah, it, small world story. It was a crazy small world. I was an elementary education major back in the day, and and it was probably good that I got out of teaching. It would have been great except for the kids. Um, <laughs> But uh, but your your mom Joanna she had a, a really significant influence on my life. She had a children's literature course. She made me read I think three hundred children's books in a semester, wow. and it just <laughs> rocked my world. It was brilliant. She was great. Well, that's so cool. I didn't know that about you, Peter. You read three hundred children's the... books in a quarter. <laughs> I did. That that's yes. That's just part of the intelligence quotient, uh, Bill. <laughs> you know, just the little train that could had a very meaningful impact. Okay. On my life. <laughs> All right. We'll just leave it there for now. I think that's yeah. fair. Yes. Dr. Joanna Klein is our guest, assistant professor of Old uh, Testament at Gordon College, and we're talking about Deborah and Jail, Jail or Jail. We're going to figure it out by the end of the hour. I don't know exactly how to say it in Hebrew, but I don't either. Uh, say that one more time in Hebrew. Yael. Yael. Okay. All right. Yael, Jail, Jael, I think okay. they, they, all, they all work. Okay. So um, we're in Judges chapter 4 still, so let's pick up where we left off. Okay. So Deborah and Barak are going to Mount Tabor with the army. Um, they're up at the army. Sisera and his uh, 900 chariots of iron have come to meet them. Um, they're by this uh, river Kishon. And we see in verse 14 here, um, Deborah is, again, encouraging Barak and delivering this message from God. So she says in verse 14, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Um, so this this uh, this is a message of encouragement for Barak. She says, God is going out before you. We see all throughout the Bible that um, God is the one who fights the battles for the Israelites. Um, and this seems to be what Barak needs. He goes down the mountain with his men. And then in verse 15, it says, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Um, in that phrase at the beginning, the Lord routed Sisera, or sometimes translated um, confounded Sisera and his chariots, or threw them into a commotion. And that's used elsewhere when God intervenes in military conflicts. And the one I think that's most interesting here, the first time that we see it, is at the Red Sea. When uh, the chariots go into the Red Sea, it says that exact word that um, God uh, threw them into a confusion. Um, and so here we see that God is doing the same thing he did at the Red Sea here um, at the river Kishon, which we see um, in chapter 5, we actually see that the river swept them away. That's what it says in chapter 5, verse 21. Um, so it brings us even closer to that Red Sea kind of scene. Um, so here God is delivering them just like he delivered the Israelites at the Red Sea. Um, Sisera, the commander, is running away. And then we have Barak basically doing his job. Verse 16, it says he pursued the chariots and the army. Uh, to Hiroshit Hagoim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. That might seem like the end of the story. Um, they, what's left to be told, not a man was left, right? Um, but then, kind of ironically, we hear the next verse, verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Um, so, uh, 
there is a man left. <laughs> it's Cicero, the most important guy, their, their army commander. Um, and he runs away to this tent of Heber the Kenite. We, heard a, we hear about him in verse 11. At that point in the story, we don't know why he's mentioned at all. But here we hear that this guy, Heber, um, is an ally of King Yavin. There's peace between them. So um, Heber actually means friend or associate. So Cicero is running to a friend, a guy whose name means friend, um, and he thinks that this is going to be a safe place. Um, but Heber isn't home. It's his wife, Yael, or Jael, however you want to say it. <laughs> and um, and so she greets him pretty in a pretty friendly way. It says in verse 18, um, and Yael came out to meet Cicero and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Uh, so here we have another, what looks like another woman encouraging a man, just like we saw in the first part of the chapter. Deborah encourages Barak. Here we have Yael encouraging Sisera. Hey, come here. It's safe. Don't be afraid. Uh, it says he came to the tent and she covered him with a rug. And in verse 19, he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. So she's acting like um, a mother. She's playing these kind of mother roles to him, keeping him safe, giving him some milk to drink, covering him up. He's feeling safe. Um, and he tells her in verse 20, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes to you and asks, is anyone here? Say no. Um, so he's kind of doing his keep, keep, keeping on giving orders, just like he's probably used to as an army commander, um, telling her what to do, telling her to stand at the opening of the tent. And what he's worried about is a man coming along. Um, and so she's supposed to, lie to any guy who comes along and say, say nobody's here. Um, so he's worrying about a man coming along. Um, but what should he really be worried about? That's what we see in verse 21. It says, but Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hands. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. So Yael, she really subverts this, uh, the image of the the a nurturing mother that we kind of got set up to see her as um, she ends up looking a lot like Ahud, the the last judge. So Ahud um, is the the judge who thrust that uh, sword into Eglon's belly. Um, the same verb is used here about what Yael does with the hammer um, and the tent peg. So she, it's the same verb that is used about Ahud thrusting the sword uh, when it says she drove the peg into his temple. Um, he ends up uh, falling on the floor on the ground dead, um, and that language is really similar to uh, what we see when Eglon's servants come in in chapter 3 um, and see him falling on the floor dead. That's what happens here in, in verse 22. Uh, so it says, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and Yael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Um, so we see God really working through surprising characters here. So Yael is not an Israelite. Um, this, this people, the Kenites, uh, are non-Israelite people. Um, so we have this non-Israelite, uh, tent-dwelling, nomadic woman uh, offering this huge assist to um, Deborah and Barak here. So Joanna, did Yael portray herself as a friend when in fact she was not? Well, it says that her husband had peace with this king of the Canaanites. It says that in verse 17, there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So these are people that are, um, at, before this point, uh, they were on good terms with uh, this Canaanite king, and Sisera is his general. So he 
you know, would have expected that this would be a safe place. Um, and we're not told why Yael kills him. Does she, is she maybe a character like Rahab? She, she sees the evidence of God working on behalf mm-hmm. of the Israelites and she um, can read the writing on the wall and she wants to be on the right side. Um, it doesn't explain uh, why she does this action, um, but it is, it's surprising to everybody involved. And so she turns out to be the woman that Deborah mentioned uh, in her prophecy in verse nine, that, you know, the Lord will give Sisera into the hand of a woman. Um, that's the woman it ends up being uh, rather than Deborah, even though Deborah plays her important role. Um, we have this kind of even more marginal woman, non-Israelite woman actually um, becoming a hero in the story too. Oh, that's pretty graphic. Couldn't you have slipped some poison into the milk? Why, why the tent peg to the temple? I'm getting very you know, nervous. We, it's, it's a gruesome scene, but we do have other judges who kind of use what they have. Uh, and they're, she's, she's sneaky and she's resourceful, like, uh, like Ahud. We have Samson, you know, he uses a donkey's jawbone. So, um, it, so these people work with the tools they have. And Joanna, with these details like this and these narrative stories, you've referenced a few different times sprinkled throughout the the story that you've been telling that there are these patterns or these themes. And you, and you referenced Ehud and, and having a similar way about uh, killing the 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 king that he did. Were the were the Hebrew people were they just interested in giving details, or was there some sort of significance in the kind of details they were giving to us? I think there's almost always significance to the details. So Hebrew narrative is very sparse, um, and there's not generally a lot of superfluous details that are just um, thrown in there for, um, you know, just for decoration. (laughs) Um, A lot of times when there are parallels between different uh, accounts, I think the point often is to show something about the characters um, and sometimes important de- important things are found in the details so i think one of the kind of surprising things here is that um it's yael who ends up kind of like a, a judge like in the model of ahud whereas uh, barack who you would think would be the the judge he's the military commander um he ends up more in the position of of Eglon's servant, so the guy who comes late to the party and the, the person's dead already. Um, hmm. So I think in this case, it just kind of shows the surprising ways that God works through people, um, and in that we have this, um, you know, non-Israelite woman who turns out to be acting kind of judge-like if we look at the model of Ahud from the story before it. Another one of the themes that you teased out a couple different times is the idea of the Red Sea and then the parting of the sea or the waters that we see here. And as you were doing that, I was thinking about how many times God delivers through the waters, like the story of Noah's Ark or Moses when he's put in the basket and and then just even tracing forward to baptism, stuff like that. Is there anything that we see in how God uses waters and, and the symbolism? I mean, these stories are real, obviously, but is there some symbolism related to the waters too? Yeah, definitely. That That idea of deliverance, through waters is really important. And in the ancient world, the sea and, and waters are usually kind of agents of chaos. They're um, chaotic. Sometimes they're represented as um, deities or, or um, enemies that have to be fought against um, and subdued. Um, and so in, in the Bible, God is the one who has control over the waters. We see that right from Genesis 1, um, that God is ordering the world into this good world where the waters are in their place. 
Um, and so that's a really important foundation, I think, for all these stories. And then you're right that we see these really interesting times of deliverance through the water. Um, <clears throat> we even see Moses being put in what's called an ark, the same word that's used about Noah's ark um, when he's a baby and uh, and he's saved um, you know, through the water, uh, he's saved in order to lead the people in an ark. Um, and then we see at the Joshua, they, they cross through uh, the Jordan in the same way as they cross the Red Sea, where the waters um, go back. Um, and so it looks a lot like that. And yeah, here again, we see um, God working with, with water. We don't see it explicitly till chapter five, the poem, but it says in verse 21, um, the torrent or the wadi, the river Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So it, it sounds like God used the water so, to kind of sweep this army away, just like at the Red Sea. Joanna, when we talk about the, the battle at the Kishon, and isn't there, can we talk about the, the size of the armies? I I understand that that uh, Sisera had 900 uh, iron chariots. Were, that's almost unheard of back then, because the Israelites had like no shields, no spears, and they had about 10,000 uh, fighters com- com- compared to the other side that had almost, a, what, 100,000 or so? Yeah, I, I don't think it gives a number for that army, but we can probably assume if they've got 900 chariots, then they've got a lot of soldiers on foot, too. They're clearly the underdog here. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't know if we have the, all the details, but even though they do have a lot of of people, they don't have the same technology, and they've been oppressed by these people for twenty years. So, um, so they're they're definitely <clears throat> the underdog here. Yeah, but God has told Deborah that that He will deliver them, and I'm thinking, wow, there there is incredible odds against them, and this is probably one of the reasons Barak is going. Well, I'll do this battle thing, but you better come with me. Yeah. Hmm. So I think one of the main points here, as I've been saying, is is God's deliverance of the people through these dark and difficult times, and also God working through unexpected people. So mm-hmm. we see, you know, Deborah at the beginning, she's this really interesting character. She wears all these different hats as a prophet, as a judge. Um, so she's a really strong character. She's a strong leader, but even she can't she doesn't do it all in, in this story. So God is really the one in control. Um, but he's working through Barak, uh, and he's working through even Yael. Um, and so I think um, this this point that God brings help from unexpected places um, and is, is an important one when I think about the story that uh, none of us can, can do it all on our own, and we might um, sometimes get help from unexpected quarters, um, and that's what we see in this in this account. Yeah, it's really a fascinating study. Um just loving we're studying Deborah and Jael with Dr. Joanna Klein. We're going to step away. When we come back, we're going to find out more about maybe some of the things that we can take away from this passage in Judges chapter 4. That's next. with Dr. Joanna Klein, Dr. Peter Kapsner. We are in Judges chapter 4, learning about Deborah and Jael. Fascinating study. Uh, Peter, you had a New Testament reference you wanted to run by Joanna. 
Yeah, just before the break, we and, and Joanna, you said it a few different times, how God seems to be choosing the kind of people to accomplish his purposes that might not match the, the metrics we might choose as human beings about who should be accomplishing his purposes. And I was just thinking about 1 Corinthians 1, where it says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards or influential or were of noble birth, but God loves to choose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and choosing the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Why might that be, Joanna? Why, why do you think we humans tend to value a certain set of criteria for people, but God seems to be seeing something entirely different? I don't know why that is, but it's definitely patterned throughout the whole Bible. I think uh, maybe to demonstrate God's power and uh, to keep us humble. Um, you know, we see in Genesis all those times of the younger the younger child being chosen in a in a society where typically the older person, the older child, the oldest child was the one um, who was uh, the kind of chosen one in a way. Um, and we see, you know, characters outside of Israel and playing important roles um, or non-Israelites, people like Tamar in, in Genesis 38 or Rahab um, at the beginning of Joshua. Um, so, and, you know, and the last will be first and the first will be last, as Jesus tells us. So uh, it's really a, a pattern that is, very consistent in the Bible. Hmm. Joanna, Deborah really stood up. She, she stood up consistently, and I'm, I'm thinking of the major, really major God-given leadership role that she she had, mm-hmm. and the strength and courage. I know there's some incredible takeaways uh, from her leadership and her courage and her boldness. Yeah, I think um, I'd like to highlight along those lines some uh, some of the emphases in Chapter 5. So I didn't really talk a lot. We haven't talked a lot about Chapter 5. That's the song that they sing afterwards. And this, like I said, it's a, it's a telling of the story um, that has a lot of similar details, but uh, it's a poem. And so we see some different emphases and some different points. And one of the points that is really emphasized here is this idea of um, participation and volunteering and stepping up. Um, and that's that's talked about multiple times in the poem. So if you see right at the beginning in verse 2, it says that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Or in verse 9, it says, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people, bless the Lord. Um, And then all through verses 13 to 18, it's talking about the different tribes who came and joined in, and then the ones who um, sat on the sidelines and didn't come. Um, In verse 23, it says, curse Moroz, um, that's apparently a city, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. And so I think we see throughout the story that even though it's God who's, um, you know, running things and and affecting the victory ultimately, that uh, people have an important role to play and the people who are ready to step up uh, like Deborah, um, so Deborah uh, steps up and she delivers God's messages, and she even goes into battle here, um, putting herself in danger. Even Barack, uh, he he steps up and he's not condemned in the poem at all. Um, he's he's singing the song as well as Deborah. Um, he's mentioned, you know, as going into battle, um, and then these particular tribes who join with them are praised, and then um, Yael is praised too. So it says in verse 24, most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, um, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. So 
the people who volunteered and who stepped up and who got ready to be involved in God's work here are the ones who are praised, and then um, some of them who are uh, who would stood along and didn't didn't come um, are called out in the poem. So there's this really emphasis on um, this participation and volunteering to to be involved, or uh, by contrast, um, sitting aside and not getting involved. There are some differences in the details between chapters four and five uh, in the stories of the narrative. Uh, is that just basically because they're written in two different kinds of ways, or how do we explain some of the differences in the details? Yeah, I think it probably has most to do with the poetic genre. So anytime you tell a story, you're focusing on particular details, and no no account can tell a whole story. Um, that's true, you know, even if we tell about what we did yesterday or uh, you read an account in the newspaper or something, nothing can include every detail of what happened. So um, this is, you know, the poem part is a poem. So I think it has more imagery. Um, it has, you know, certain things are set a certain way for poetic effect. Um, we even hear in verse 20 that um, from heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. So we have this kind of heavenly perspective that even the stars were fighting. Um, God even God brings these elements of nature like the stars and the river um, to fight this battle. Um, and it's just not details that um, that are highlighted in the prose version of the story. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think we, I, I wouldn't get hung up on different different ways that this is told. I think the, the different ways that it's told is actually a, a benefit to see, you know, what, what are the points that are really highlighted and emphasized in the prose version of this story and what are the ones that are emphasized in the poem. And we can kind of see some, some interesting distinctions and help us see new elements of the story in that way. One of my favorite moments, uh, Joanna, is in chapter four and verse eight and nine where uh, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. S- certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Is that a little bit of a jab there? <laughs> well, and you know, we do see uh, that being killed by a woman in the Bible is a uh, um, kind of, you know, the ultimate insult for a, a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in because uh, these people are, you know, non-combatants, and um, and and so you would. It's just another example, I think, of uh, that. Barack is the one who should be the military commander. You would think he would get kind of the glory for going right. into battle. Um, and I don't. I think he he does what he needs to do in the end, um, and God works through him. Um, so I don't think this is really a story about Barack's cowardice exactly um but it's more of a story of um you know the ways that god works through some of these other people as well yeah so he she's not deborah's not jabbing him there a little bit saying the you know the credit's not going to go to you it's going to go to me (laughs) (laughs) well in the end it's not her you know we might think that it's going to be her but i i think the woman that that what the the our expectations are subverted too as readers that that woman um that we think might be deborah who does i think get some credit for the battle uh but the ultimate one that gets sisera in her hand is is yael yeah yeah it's a wild story it's it's been so fun having you on the show and learning about deborah and doing a deep dive on judges chapter four and and five so it's been great i hope you've enjoyed it and fun I have. And just not to mention that your mom and, and Peter um, have <laughs> no, know each other, and your mom had a big influence on Peter, which 
It's a very cool story. It's been that's one of the really highlights cool. for to, tonight for me. Yeah, yeah it really is. You really... know, the, those generational things, right? You just you, <laughs> it's a small world number one, but the generational thing. I just uh, to, to think about. I know your mom had such influence on so many different students, and and the way she carried herself in the journey, and yet the whole story just keeps going. So I just I love. It just it, it tells you you're in the right story when when <laughs> we get a chance to be a part of these kinds of relationships like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so wonderful to hear. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, always nice to get a compliment about your mom, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Well, jo- uh, Joanna, thank you so much for doing the show. It's just a, been a delight meeting you and having you on the program. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. All right, Peter, that is uh, a great a great study of Deborah and JL. I'll continue to work Learned. on saying that. Yeah, yeah. You you get that Hebrew pronunciation down because I've got nothing. That J confuses me right up front. I know. And so and, and it's apparently a silent J, but that was the case with uh with Yehoi- Dr. Mark Moscow too, right? Yehoi-da, you still yeah. have that one down, indeed. Yeah, yeah, we've learned so much in these studies, haven't we? That yeah. that story I knew next to nothing about going in. Yeah. And Joanna was really good with the Hebrew names. She was. Yeah. She was. And she also um she was the kind of Hebrew scholar, too, that, that can get into the weeds of the different themes and symbolism that's in that text. The Hebrew is a very rich language, and she was really able to take us there. <laughs> you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Peter, thanks so much. We'll do it again next week. Always a delight. Sounds good. Yep, you bet. Yeah, Dr. To Peter it. Kapsner and I have really enjoyed this hour with you and Dr. Joanna Klein. It's been great learning about Deborah and Yael. Hi. Anyway, tomorrow we're awfully excited to start our campaign for one child so we're excited that there's many across the listening network that's going to hear about it and learn about it and possibly uh, go and adopt a child that's all tomorrow have a great night everyone i'll see you soon thanks for listening programming like this is made available through your support information available at myfaithradio.com